Tonight we're going to turn to a very difficult scripture to find in your Bible. It's, um, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning. In fact, I, I didn't send Isaac any notes, but the title is Beginnings, because we're starting at the beginning. And, um, you know, Genesis means beginning. It's the book of beginnings, and in it we find the beginning of the world. We find the beginning of uh, the life forms in the world, the beginning of man. We find the beginning of sin, the beginning of death. But in the wake of that, we find the beginning of God's redemptive plan. You know, we see him beginning a nation through which uh, he would bring about the redemption of man. And something that I think gets lost in the reading of Genesis, and really the Old Testament in general, you know, it used to frustrate me sometimes. I'm a very logical, literal person. And it used to frustrate me quite a bit that there seemed to be things that were left out. You know, like um, uh, sometimes it seems, you know, they'll, they'll tell... You know, this guy begot this guy, begot, had this guy's son, and this guy, and this guy. And, and sometimes I, I would think, well, why didn't he talk about him and who, you know, how, where he came from and all that? But something that I've discovered about Genesis and the Old Testament in general is that it focuses not so much on a historical account. It focuses on God's redemptive plan for man. And so what we see is things that are important to the fall of man and then the redemption of man up to Jesus Christ. And I give you a good example. Am I still on? Am I, I'm just not echoing anymore. Excellent. Um, I give you an example. Uh, Adam, in Genesis, it talks about three sons that Adam had, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And if you, if you know, Adam lived till he was 900 years old and he was married for most of that time. I believe that Adam had many more children than Cain, Abel, and Seth. But Cain, Abel, and Seth are the important figures in Adam's life in the fall of man and God's redemptive plan, right? Because through Seth, Adam is connected to Noah, and through Noah, he's connected to Abraham, and it was from the line of Abraham that Messiah came, that Jesus Christ came. And so that's kind of the, 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 the uh, ebb and flow of the Old Testament and of Genesis in general. And uh, so let's start here at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty a formless mass cloaked in darkness. The Spirit of God was hovering over its surface. See, right at the very beginning, God wants to establish something that is very important for us to understand the whole Bible as a whole. To, in order to understand the Bible in its entirety, there's some key things that God lays out from the very beginning. And the first thing was, is that God was in the beginning. And so the question is, what was the beginning? The beginning is eternal. You see, God, by nature, is eternal. In uh, John eight fifty eight, while being questioned by his Jewish peers, I think this is just a powerful verse in the Bible. 
Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. That's pretty cool. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. You see, we, we can't really grasp eternity very easily with our temporal minds because everything that we know has to do with time. We live in a temporal world. You know, we, we, we operate by the watches on our wrists and the clocks on the wall. And so it's very difficult for us to grasp the concepts of eternity. In fact, in my opinion, it's a lot easier to understand eternity forward than it is to understand eternity backwards. Because for me, it's a lot easier to understand that God is going to exist from now until forever than it is for me to understand that God existed from now until forever, you know. Uh, it's an interesting thing. But even though we don't necessarily understand eternity, we can believe by faith that God is eternal because his word tells us that he is eternal. And so we believe that. Now the, uh, the Hebrew word translated God in Genesis chapter 1, and I think through 3. Uh, there's a couple of, there's a couple of uh, words that God in the creation account is the word Elohim. And then it, beginning, I think, in chapter 3 or 4, you begin to see in, in your Bible, capital, the Lord. And that is Jehovah. That's Father God. But in the creation account, the word is Elohim. And it's a plural word that points to the Trinity nature of God. So in other words, he's, it's saying, in the beginning, the gods, or that's, that's, that's poorly put. In the beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit created the heavens and the earth, is, what, is, is how this can be read. And um, we see, we see the, the work of Father God uh, throughout the Old Testament. You know, uh, Father God, Jehovah, was the one who interacted with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph. Uh, he is, he is the, the, the most prevalent figure in the Old Testament. And like I said, anytime you see capital V, capital Lord, that is, that is the, the transliteration of Jehovah, of, of Father God. And um, so we see God here in the beginning, from the beginning. In verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the, of the deep, of the, of the earth that was without form and void. So there's the Spirit at creation. And then... Um, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And so, as you read further into John chapter 1, we find that the Word is clearly defined as Jesus Christ. And so, from the very beginning, we see the Trinity active in the creation of the world and then active through our current time where 
we understand that, that we relate to Father God through, through the Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah, and he is sent when he went back to heaven, the helper, the Holy Spirit, to allow us to walk in that newness of life that God called us to. And that's the Trinity nature of God. Uh, and again, you know, it's, it's hard to understand this, this three and one. Three, they're three, he's three, but he's one. You know, they're, they're, they're three separate, but they're one. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to grasp. I don't pretend to understand it, but I believe by faith that it's true because the Bible says that it's true. And God established that from the very beginning. In fact, I skipped over this, but, but in, in verse 26, uh, whenever he talks about the creation of man, he doesn't say, I will make man in my image. He says, let us make man in his image, which also points to the, the Trinity nature of God. So, there's a lot of theories about the creation and about how uh, the creation account of Genesis could be reconciled to uh, things like geology and science and the fossil records. You know, uh, it's important that we realize that these things are, are speculation and not doctrine, you know. It's a dangerous thing whenever you take things that are speculation based off of what you think might have happened from what the Scripture said as things that the Scripture actually says. And the only reason I say that is is because there are people who, point the, who preach these in-between-the-line things as doctrine, and we need to be careful of that. We need to be careful of that. You know, um, there's some things that are worth getting into disputes and arguments over, and this isn't one of them, is, I guess is what I'm saying. And so as believers, it's important that, that we beware of these things being taught as doctrinal and that we uh, be careful not to teach those things that are not clearly defined in Scripture as Scripture. Having said that, I think it's a lot of fun to look in between the lines one time, sometimes. And, uh, you know, I think it's fun to read about the various theories. You know, there's, there's some people that believe that, that between Genesis 1, whenever God created the heavens and the earth, and, and then the earth was without form and, wo- and void, that there's some undefined gap of time in which, uh, you know, there was maybe life on, the, on earth and, and, and the angels were created and the fall of Satan and in the big battle where Satan fell, the earth became without form and void and all this stuff. And I think it's kind of a reach, but it's kind of interesting, you know. And uh, there's some people that, that trying to reconcile with the evolutionary theory say that the creation wasn't um, six literal days, but it was six geological time periods that, are, that, are, that were eons each or whatever. And, and that, that uh, the evolutionary theory reconciles with the Bible because these aren't, you know, the, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years as a day. But there's some pretty significant problems with that theory, one of which is, is that the plants were created on the third day. And I don't see how the plants could have lasted for a geological time period without the sun that was created on the fourth day. Another thing is, you know, it talks about uh, Adam when he had Seth. He was 130 years old. If Adam was created in the sixth geological period and then he lived through a seventh geological period of rest, then uh, he would have been much older than uh, 130 years old. And so people talk about these things and they're speculated. And, uh, you know, just for time, I won't really get into them too much. But I'd like to tell you what I think is the most uh, literal and plausible uh, account, a reconciling of the scripture with what the world that we know today. 
And it's important to know these things because there's people who ask these questions. You know, there's people, well, no way God could have created earth in seven days, 6,000 years ago, you know. And it's important as believers, you know, the Bible says that we should be prepared to defend our faith. You know, we should be ready to answer these things. And so that's why I go here. And to me, uh, you know, it's, it's very important to always read the Bible literally. You know, it's important that we take the Bible as a, as a literal account inspired by the Spirit of God given to us of things that happen in God's plan unless God specifically tells us in the Scriptures that he's given us a symbol or he's given us a parable. Otherwise, I choose to read literally. And, uh, you know, the Bible gives all kinds of warnings, especially in Revelation, about adding things and taking things away from the Scriptures. Um, But the most literal interpretation of this is that God did create the heavens and the earth, and then immediately after, for six days, he created the world that we know. That's, That's the way that this is literally read. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that, see, that a lot of people hold up in opposition to that is, well, what about the fossils? The fossils speak otherwise. You know, but there's actually a lot of evidence that the fossil strata or layers were not laid over millions of years, but in, in a single cataclysmic event. The reason I say that is, is because, for one, today there's no evidence that new fossils have formed in modern day. There's no evidence. So if it happened over millions and millions of years, then why has it stopped, you know? Uh, Second thing, there's been a lot of archaeological finds in, in, in confined areas like caverns and canyons where they've found the bones of animals that are adverse to each other in habitat found in, in, a, in the same general location and, and their, their bones are, are splintered and smashed as if they were forced into these confined areas by some uh, strong force, some, some cataclysmic event. Uh, you guys have probably read about how there's been findings of, of human footprints and dinosaur footprints which indicate uh, the coexistence of man with the dinosaurs. And uh, there's also some things that are very difficult for the evolutionists to explain in that there's some fossil uh, strata in which a single tree is fossilized having grown through millions of years of fossil strata or fossil layers. And so there's a lot of stuff that points to against the, uh, the scientific holding on the fossil record and points to a single cataclysmic event, and I believe that we're given that cataclysmic account in uh, Genesis in the account of Noah's flood. You know, and, and the Bible talks about the, the, uh, the, you know, that whenever God created the earth, there was a mist that came out of the ground that watered the ground. It didn't rain, but a mist came out of the ground. It talks about the, the waters that were, that were suspended above the earth as a protection in the original earth, and in that flood, you know, it talks about the, the fountains of the deep burst forth and, and, and the water that was suspended in the atmosphere condensed and came down. And it would have been a very violent, um, violent earth-wide event as, as, as the, the, those fountains of the deep pushed themselves up through. There would have been shifting and, and there would have been violent water forces moving through the earth. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of scientists that believe that, that, that most of the fossils point more towards 
the laying from a violent flood of these strata than it does to uh, continual, to continual growth over a long time. And, you know, there's, there's things, uh, I don't want to get off on this too long, but there's, you know, you've got the, the less advanced animals that are fossilized down low, and as you get higher, the evolutionists say that, that because evolution was taking its role, the more developed animals are higher up in the strata. But it makes sense to me that... Um, that the more advanced life forms would be able to struggle for their life longer in the flood and make it higher up in these deposits and in, 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 in the flood and survive longer than the primitive animals. And that, to me, it's very logical that that, that, that would give us that, that layering of, of the less um, developed animals and life forms at the bottom and the more advanced at the top. And... Um, it's, it's much more logical in my mind than uh, boom, bang, monkey, human, you know. Uh, but you can decide for yourself. Um, so, the big question that comes up, if God created the earth in a literal six days, then when were the angels created and when did Satan fall? Because we know that shortly after uh, the creation of man, we see Satan coming into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. So when, 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 a lot of people say, if it was a six-day creation, then, then how could Satan be created, be an angel, get a third of the angels to rebel against God in six days? And see, that's where the mistake lies, because the Bible doesn't give us any indication of the time period between when Man was, man was made and placed in the garden, and when Satan came to tempt him. Let me show you something. This is interesting. In Genesis 1.31, God said at the end of the creation, he said, he, it says he looked at the creation and he saw that it was very good. That indicates that perhaps Satan hadn't fallen at the end of the creation account. Uh, furthermore, in Genesis 2.8, that's whenever God planted the Garden of Eden and put man in the garden. Now, that happened after the completion of creation. But Ezekiel, and I don't, I don't claim to know this 100% true to be, to be true. You can take a look at it and we can talk about it later. But Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 through 15, speaks of Lucifer in his pre-fallen state in his pre-fallen cherub state in the garden. It, uh, it, it talks about how he walked through the garden as a, as a cherub until, until the pride entered into his mind. And so it seems to indicate that, that Satan, as Lucifer, before he fell, was actually in the garden, which again points to a post-creation uh, fall. Uh, in the literal six-day creation, the Bible doesn't tell us about when the angels were created, but we are given a clue elsewhere in Scripture. In uh, Job 38, 4-7, it talks about how the angels sang as God laid the foundations of the earth, which would indicate that the angels were created on the first day whenever God created the heavens and the earth and before he began to let there be light, uh, separate the waters from the land, etc. And so there's clues in Scripture that point to these things. And uh, in Genesis 3.1, we see fallen Satan finally coming in to tempt Adam and Eve. But here's the thing. There's no time reference given in Genesis until 
Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when it tells us that Adam was 130 years old when, he gave birth, when Eve gave birth to Seth. And so we have a 130-year time gap here in which we know a couple of things happen. We know that Adam was created. We know that um, Satan came. Satan fell. Satan came. He tempted Adam. Adam and Eve sinned. They were evicted from the Garden of Eden. They had Cain and Abel and probably a lot of other sons and daughters. And then, at 130 years old, Adam had Seth. After the infamous dispute that resulted in Cain murdering Abel. And so, it's very plausible to me that whenever God put Adam in the garden, maybe he lived there for 50 years. And, you know, having that communion and that fellowship with God and being obedient to God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it could be that in those 50 years that, that Satan became jealous of God, had that pride enter into his heart that it talks about in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, and, and, and decided, I'm going to be like God. And, and, and in those 50 years or 100 years, uh, you know, he gathered a third of the angels to his side and they rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. And at that point, uh, you know, he would have came to Adam and, and tempted Adam and Eve and then they were cast out of the garden. And then they would have had plenty of time to have Cain and Abel and a lot of sons and daughters who would grow up and begin to populate the earth. And maybe in their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, even up to their 70s or 80s, maybe Cain and Abel had their dispute. And then at 130 years old, Adam had Seth. It's very plausible. It's a very literal interpretation of the Bible. And, and in my opinion, from what I've read, and this is subject to change, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the best. It's not original with me, but it's the best I've read. And it's, it's, uh, it's the most literal interpretation of the Scripture. Now, again, uh, you know, I'll go back to the fact that none of this really, really, really matters, you know, but we should be able to stand logically on our faith and be able to say more than it is because it is, you know? And so anyway, I think that's cool and fun and interesting. And uh, you can Google it, and there's a lot of stuff from people that are smarter than me and who have done a lot more research. Uh, so let's go to verse 3 here. Verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. You know, this statement, not to get into it too much, but this statement, the separating the light from the darkness, is extremely significant to me from an ancient text. Because whenever they wrote this, they didn't realize what they were writing, but God did separate the light from the darkness. You know, Rojibiv, the spectrum, red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo violet the spectrum the light was separated from the darkness the infrared and the ultraviolet to me that's awesome it's awesome that that this ancient text references the separation of the light from the darkness and um, it said God called the light day and the darkness night and together these made up one day now uh, the Hebrew here can literally be translated that God said, light be, and light was. And this is the first demonstration of the power of 
God's Word and the creative account. And, uh, you know, we see it throughout the creative account, just the power of God's Word. And uh, I'll read you a couple of scriptures. Isaiah 55, verse 10 says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And then speaking of Jesus and his return, his second coming to the earth, in Isaiah 11:4, it says, He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. See, the word of God is powerful. It is extremely powerful. It's by God's word that he created everything that we know. It's by God's word that upon Jesus Christ's return that that he'll speak to his enemies and they'll be destroyed. And that word is available, the power of that word is available to us as a daily source of life. And God promises that if, if we'll put the word in our hearts and in our minds, that it will not return void, that it will accomplish his desire in our lives, that it will form us and shape us from glory to glory into that image of God and allow us to walk in those purposes that he's called us from before the beginning of time. It's the word of God. And it's powerful in our lives. And so, here on the first day, we see he created the light. That was the first day. On the second day, uh, God created the atmosphere. And he set all the, all the pressures in the atmosphere and all that balance of, of nitrogen and oxygen and carbon that is the perfect balance for life. You know, uh, I just, I just think it's, it's amazing that people think that that was an accident, you know, that, that, that perfect balance for life. Uh, he put in place protections in the atmosphere against solar and other cosmic radiations. And, you know, sadly, man has slowly eroded away at those protections as we become more and more industrial. But, but God, in his love for us, he, he put those protections to, to sustain us and to keep us from being harmed from, from the things outside of the atmosphere. Um, on the third day, God caused the land to rise out of the water, and he created the plant life. And, you know, to me, the plants are just an awesome testament of God. Each plant has a, a, a genetic makeup that, that is... That is unique and awesome that allows these mindless, lifeless, well, not lifeless, but mindless, stationary plants to thrive and to live. Um, you know, the, the root systems are, are like these little microscopic laboratories 
that operate without any any governance, any supervision. They just do, you know. Uh, the photosynthetic process is a scientific marvel. It's awesome. The uh, the way that that the plants propagate their seeds. You know, some plants they have uh, little wings on them that that spin in the wind and they, they fly like a helicopter and, and there's, some, there's some seeds that, that, that are in pods and the pods pressurize and explode and, and, and spread the seeds out and there's, there's some that got even flavored so that animals would come and eat them and then go away and propagate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, it's just awesome to me and it speaks of the creativity, the diversity, and the awesomeness of our God and the very plants that we see every day. On the fourth day, God introduced the sun and the moon and the stars to the earth. You know, and I, I think about this a lot, and I, I walk back into Josh's, Josh's view. Um, I think that likely when God created the heavens and the earth that the sun and the moon and the stars were already were there then. But maybe uh, in that, due to the without form and void described in verse 2, I, I picture maybe like a haze or a fog, you know, over the earth, kind of like a very overcast day where you can tell that it's day because of the presence of light. Remember God said, let there be light, and there was night, and there was day, and there was night, and there was day. It's very hard for there to be night and day without the sun, you know. And so I think the sun was there, but, but maybe it wasn't visible and it was very muffled to the earth. Uh, and again, this is all speculation. But on the fourth day, what we do know is is that, that, that God brought into view of the earth the sun and the moon and the stars, and they began to function as they were designed to function. And so that was the fourth day. On the fifth and sixth days, God created the aquatic animals, the birds, and the land animals. And again, in, in the animal kingdom, we see that awesome creativity and diversity of God. You know, I think of, I think of things like uh, anteaters, you know. <laughs> Who'd have thought, you know? I think of awesome creatures like whales, you know, and their, their, just their, their size and the way they function. You know, a mammal that breathes air that swims in the ocean, you know. And... Uh, you know, I think about I think about insects and flies. You know, that that you know they're so small and, and and their wings don't really look like they can make them fly, but they make them fly. And one of the most interesting things about flies to me is that they get up by the ceiling and then all of a sudden they can turn upside down and walk on the ceiling. You know, and and sometimes I think about you know how close does a fly have to get to the to the ceiling before he can. He can walk on it, you know, and it's it's just a it's just an awesome, awesome thing, you know. the The human eye is one of the most miraculous designs that there is. That 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 light can enter into a small opening in our pupils and trigger signals to our brain that can instantly and continuously interpret visual uh, spectrum is an awesome thing and you know God is a God of wonders and it's demonstrated in the animals you know in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 it says 
For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So, having seen the creation, and that's an insertion there, having seen the creation, they have no excuse for not knowing God. It takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of the Lord. And you know, from the simpleness of a flower seed propagating in the wind, to the cycles of rain that sustain life, to the perfect conditions of our atmosphere and positioning of our planet for life, to the extremely precise and intricate human eye that I talked about a while ago, creation testifies of a design. And anywhere that there is a design, there must be a designer. And that designer is our God. And it's our privilege and our honor to get to serve the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's an awesome thing. So, let's skip down. I kind of um, summarized through verse 25. Now we skip down to verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the livestock, wild animals, and small animals. So God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself, male and female. He created them. Now the Bible tells us that God is a spirit. He's not a man, he's a spirit. In the Bible, when God presents himself to man, he never presents himself as a physical image. You look in the Bible. In fact, every time that someone says that they saw God, they describe him as that unapproachable light. The Bible says that, that God dwells in unapproachable light. He's not, in, he's not a physical image. He's spirit. The Bible gives us no indication about what God looks like. So we shouldn't think that Genesis 1, 25 and 20, or 26 and 27 is speaking of a physical image that we're created in. So the question is, what is the image of God that we are created in? It's very important to know because that image that we were created in is the essence and the uh, original intent of who God wants us to be. It's who we're working back to become. And so it's very important that we understand that image of God that we were created in. So, first of all, like God, we were made to be eternal. We were created eternal beings. God is eternal, and he made man in his image to be eternal. And something that we need to understand is, is that even though this body is going to die one day, we will live forever. We're going to live forever. The, you know, um, Paul, said, Paul said that he, he longed to leave this tent of the body so that he could go and inhabit that, that mansion not made with hands in heaven with God. He said to be absent from the body is to be present, from, present with the Lord. And Jesus said that um, he is the way, the truth, and the life and that anyone who believes in him will never die. 
We transition, but we do not die. Like God, we were made to be eternal. And if we believe on Jesus Christ, then we will be with God for eternity. That's what the Bible tells us. So, that's the first thing. That's the first thing that we are made in the image of God. We are eternal as he is eternal. Secondly, we talked about God is a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Likewise, God made man as an inferior trinity. We're made spirit, soul, and body. A trinity. An inferior trinity to the, to the heavenly trinity, but a trinity nonetheless. And God created us as a spirit-led being. We were created to be in the spirit because it's in the spirit is how we have communion with God. And that's what we were created to do. We were created to commune with God. And so the way God created the hierarchy of man was the spirit is the real us. That is who we are. That is our connection with God. The soul is our consciousness, our mind. And then the body was simply made as a medium of expression. It was made as a medium of expression to express the spirit, the real me, to God, to other people. And that's, that, that, that was the original intent. That was the original hierarchy, spirit, soul, and body. But when sin entered into the world, there was an inversion in the hierarchy of man. Because God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the, tree, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, then you shall surely die. And when they disobeyed God, the spirit was separated from God. And separation from God is the definition of spiritual death. And so the spirit died, and the flesh was made king. There was an inversion in the hierarchy of man. That's why Jesus says that we must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because the, the dead spirit has to be made alive again and rise to the top over the flesh, which would seek to make us like the world, right? So, um, so man is a trinity, spirit, soul, and body. And the believer, as believers, we have a struggle because our spirit has been made alive again, but our flesh still wants to be in control. It's a battle. But... God says that he sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to people who believe on Jesus Christ to help us to walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh so that we could walk as the trinity that God intended us to be, a spirit-led person with the soul and the body following after the spirit. Right? Yeah, see it? Does that make sense? So, like God, we, were, we, we are a trinity, spirit, soul, and body. Um... Next, God's chief characteristic is his self-determination or his power to choose. That's the chief characteristic of God. He has the power to choose. And like God, we were created in his image and that God gave us the power of choice. Now, the reason God gave us the power of choice is because, like I talked about, the reason we were created is because God wanted to have fellowship with us. God wanted to, God wanted to, to, to love us and for us to choose to love him. You know, there's, God could have easily created beings without choice, but there's no true love without choice. 
You know, God, God, God doesn't want to hear any more than we do from a robot or, you know, you take out your phone, Siri, tell, you, tell me you love me. I love you. <laughs> and, you know, there's no, there's no satisfaction in that. You know, there's, there's, there, there's no uh, true fellowship there. And so God gave us the power of choice in his image, but the power of choice has no meaning unless two things happen. Number one, there has to be a choice. And number two, God has to respect that choice. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. And so that's the reason why the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there. In order for the power of choice to mean something, there had to be a choice. The second thing is an awesome and fearful thing. Is that... God respects the choices that we make. He honors the choices that we make. Whether they're good choices or bad choices, God honors the choices that we make because he gave us that privilege in his image. He does seek to influence our choices because he loves us. You know, he, he shows us that he loves us. He helps us in life. He gives us his spirit. He, he shows his goodness through the cross with, and, and through Jesus Christ and, and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But we can always choose to reject the Lord or to follow him. It's our choice. And God honors it. And that's a very fearful and awesome thing. You know, each person has the choice of their destiny. You know, it's our choice whether or not we walk in those purposes that God created for us from before the beginning of time. It's by our choice of where we'll spend eternity. If we choose Jesus, if we choose to believe in Jesus, then we get to spend eternity in heaven with God. But if we reject Jesus, then we choose to be separated from God. It's a choice. You know, that's why I can't stand the question that so many people throw in the face of God of why would a loving God send someone to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. People go to hell by their choosing. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Those who see the creation stand without excuse. God reveals himself to those, but, but, but those who harden their hearts against him. And it's by choice that we walk in, 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 in those purposes of God or not. But if we choose to believe on Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are counted as righteous. If we choose to follow him, the Bible says that we receive to our account eternal reward. You know, uh, our power of choice is literally a God-like quality that we possess inside of us. It's the image of God, and it's extremely powerful. And so that leaves us with a very important question that we need to ask ourselves. What are we doing with our power of choice? What am I choosing for my destiny? What am I choosing that is hindering my destiny? What kind of person 
should I choose to be? You know, because I say this a lot, it's not so much about what you have, it's about what you do with what you have that God is concerned with. God never said that everybody was going to be equal. God never said that it was all going to be fair. He said, you take what you have and you do something for me with it, you know? And so in, in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, I love this passage, verse 10, 2 Peter 3.10. Peter says, uh, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, Here's the question. Since, since this whole world's going to burn <laughs> at the end and before the new heaven and the new earth come, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in in which righteousness dwells. So we need to ask ourselves, how am I using my power of choice? And I believe that if we could only truly grip that this life is temporal, that nothing in this life is going to be with us in eternity, that we live here for 80 years and then we're going to live in eternity, and 80 years out of eternity is 0%. (laughs) If we could just get that and begin to understand that only those things that are eternal are the things that are truly going to be with us for the duration of our existence then we would begin to use our choice more for things eternal. You know, it's a perspective change. It's something that we continually have to struggle with. Lastly, the chief emotional aspect of God is love. We are created with that capacity to love as God loved. We have the choice to hate, but God is honored when we follow him and we love as he loved. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus' response was love. In Mark chapter 12, verse 29, it says, Jesus said, The most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. See, the essence of the Bible, the essence of God is love. We honor him when we love And you know, it's not the love of the world that loves 
because of what I can get from you. The love of God is a love that loves because of what I can give to you. It's that agape love that God speaks of in the Bible. It's that love that says that God so loved the world that he gave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was explaining the spiritual gifts. He was talking about prophecy and tongues and and all the spiritual gifts, telling the Corinthian church uh, about them. And at the end of his description of all the gifts in chapter 12, he spent the whole chapter describing the gifts. And then at the end of that, he said this in verse 31. He said, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And from that, he transitioned into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the most descriptive chapter of agape love and how it, it operates in our lives. Y'all know it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not proud. Basically, love gives. Love is the more excellent way. And in, in all aspects of our lives, you know, we need to choose to love. You know, and that's, that's the image of man in the image of God. You know, so let's stand. That's all I got. I'm going to close in prayer. I hope... I hope that this can create in us a perspective of who we are called to be. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you, Father, for your word, Lord. I thank you for these things that you have revealed to us through your word, God, that, that you are eternal, God, that you are a trinity, Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God, I pray that you would help us to have an eternal perspective, God, being eternal in your image. God, that we would walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That we would walk, Lord God, in that, that revived spirit, Lord God, and that purpose that Christ came and died and now lives for, God. Lord, we thank you, God, for the awesome power of choice, Lord. We pray that you would help us, God, to be responsible with that, Lord, and to choose the things eternal, Lord God, to choose to set our, thing, our hearts on the things that are not temporal, but on the things which are eternal, God. And Lord, we pray that you would put in our hearts as we walk according to the Spirit that love, that agape love that you demonstrated through Jesus Christ who came and gave his life for us while we were yet sinners. Lord, I pray that you would put that agape love in us, God, and, and help us to walk in it, Father. I, I thank you, Lord, for each and every person here tonight, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, that, there, that, that this word falls on, on good soil, that the seed is sown deep, Lord God. And Father God, that it takes root and produces much fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen.